0: Chefs without restaurants, episode one fifty four with Eli Culp.
1: This one I was done early, so I jumped on the nine oh five train, Amtrak train one eighty eight. You know, walked down the platform, got on the train as normal. Nine minutes in to the train ride, you know, it was was dark. I couldn't really tell how fast we were going or where we were or anything. And I felt like this really big shudder in the train, more than normal. And you know, within a second, the train had derailed off the track, uh, going 108 miles an hour in and in, in a curve that was, that was a 55 mile an hour curve. I go flying through the air and whatever reason I turned about 90 degrees in the air and my neck hit squarely against the luggage rack of the other opposite seats. And it immediately, you know, compressed my spinal cord and shattered the, uh, the spine there. So, and sort of fell into a heap under a bunch of stuff and debris and it was dark and you know nobody knew what was going on i pretty much knew that i was that my life had changed in a big way i was paralyzed from from essentially the chest down at that moment this is the chefs without restaurants podcast with your host chris speer
0: each week i'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry if you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and, .org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Almost every day I wake up and expect that I'm going to have a somewhat normal day. You know, good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen. Not usually anything terrible. But sometimes there's a day where I don't know, your luck runs out. Maybe this is a depressing way to start a podcast, but this episode's really had me thinking about some things. Chef Eli Kulp was just coming home from work one day. He was taking the Amtrak train and the train derailed. Eight people on that train died. Thankfully, he was not one of them, but he went flying through the air, his back hit the luggage rack, and it left him paralyzed. He's now in a wheelchair. You know, he was a chef at the top of his game, food and wine, best new chef, all the accolades, right? Not that accolades are everything, but just to say that he was a chef's chef. He was in the process of getting another restaurant opened, and in the blink of an eye, that's it. What would you do could you imagine if tomorrow you were bound to a wheelchair and you couldn't even use your hands and you had to go through months and months of rehab i don't know i was just amazed at how he took something like that and has kind of been able to recover from that and even look on the bright side of things i guess you know he's got a a young son i think his son was 3 at the time when this happened and You know, working in restaurants is tough on families. Who knows what kind of time he would have had with his son if he was living that previous life running multiple restaurants in different cities. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise. So on the show, he's going to talk about his story of, you know, how he started in the food business. We have some fun conversation too. We talk about his mom's love of microwave cooking, Uh, we talk about his love of the Philadelphia roast pork sandwich and not being a fan of the Philly cheesesteak. I know that's a controversial thing there. But the heart of this story is that literally in seconds, his life was changed forever. And not only is he going to relate that story, but he is also going to just talk about, you know, the depression that came out of this. He said he didn't even know if he wanted to continue living. So I'm so glad that Eli is still with us. Uh, He now has two fantastic podcasts, which you should definitely check out. I think he's an inspiration and someone who I think is going to continue to change the food service industry. So I hope you enjoy this episode and just take a moment to be grateful for all the gifts you have, all the blessings you have and the life that you have. And just a quick note that the podcast release day for now is going to be changing to Wednesday. So I'm just going to be kind of moving the schedule around a little bit. If you have opinions on that, feel free to drop me a line. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants, or hit me up via email at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. And this is the part where I talk about sponsors. If you go to chefswithoutrestaurants.com forward slash sponsors, you're going to find all the info on our current sponsors, previous sponsors, and affiliate partners. With the affiliate partners, all that means is those are products I already use and love. If you click on the links on that page, it costs you literally nothing, but I'm going to get a small commission when you buy stuff. And I'm most thankful for our podcast audio ad sponsors. So before this week's episode starts, you're going to hear from this week's sponsor, the United States Personal Chef Association. So, thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Over the past 30 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it allowed personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly 1,000 chefs around the US and Canada, USPCA provides a strategic backbone to those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, Communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience with their meal. USPCA provides training to become a personal chef through our preparatory membership. Looking to showcase your products or services to our chefs and their clients? Partnership opportunities are available. Call Angela today at 1 800 995 2138 705 or email her at APRA. T-H-E-R at USPCA.com for membership and partner info. Hey Eli, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. What's going on? How are you?
1: Good to be here. I'm fantastic.
0: I always love when I have a chef who podcasts. I mean, I love all my chefs on my show, but it's also <laughs> nice to connect with someone who kind of kinda has both
1: the dual interests going on there. I tell you what, podcasting is is opened so many doors and it's just, it's one of those things you don't expect it to... Uh, when you start out, you just expect you know these these interviews and I'll publish them and they're and they're simple and they're you know they're straightforward and no no frills and then you kind of get uh, you know a little bit more into the craft and you learn that there's a whole skill set behind it and you know you sort of apply the same that same uh, you know, work ethic to you know, what you do in the kitchen, but you do it you know for the podcast and yeah, it's been fun, man. It's been a fun ride. so yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it., oh, you're welcome.
0: I find it really rewarding, like the feedback I get from people who say, I listened to this episode and it was great and it really helped me or, you know, I was able to um, acquire customers or charge more for my services after listening to this episode. I find it really fulfilling to, you know, do you get good feedback like that from listeners?
1: I do. It's amazing just walking down the street sometime and farmer's markets are, you know, there's like a lot of foodies there at the farmer's market. So they're always like, hey, you know, chef, you know, love the show. You know, I've been getting so much out of it, you know whether it's a a, a cook or another chef. Uh, yeah, it's been great. And I actually was able to do a live event. Uh, was it last week in in Philly where we raised a bunch of money for a local food organization that was you know, we had one hundred and twenty five people there. We had fifteen chefs cooking. Yeah, it was great. And did some live, live interviews on stage. It was a blast. So yeah, like I said, podcasting, you know, it's one of those things where you start out thinking one thing and before you know it, you're, you're, you're in this whole other stratosphere of, of, you know, potential opportunities. So it's been great.
0: And not something that you came up with. You didn't go to school for media or journalism or oh, anything no, like that, no, right? No, you're, no. A, you're a chef's chef. And, you know, I'd say a pretty well-known chef, especially in your area. I usually start the show... With kind of like culinary background, so let's start there growing up food cooking, was sure. that something you 're always into? Did you love eating as a kid? When did you start cooking professionally?
1: I would say food was never like the center of you know our family. My mom immigrated from Holland when she met my father down in Lake Tahoe. They were a couple of traveling hippies, and they met, and they they found this little spot in Washington State where I grew up. Uh, at the end of a dirt road, a little single wide trailer. And, you know, I wouldn't say we were, we weren't poor, but we, we were under the poverty line. Like, you know, no doubt about it. My dad was a timber worker. So there'd be times he's on unemployment for big stretches. And, you know, as the timber industry went kind of back and forth with, you know, we had the spotted owl out there and it shut down so much timber, you know, timber work that, you know, for him, I remember that period of my life. And, but my mom, my mom actually learned to cook a little bit for my dad. Um, Which doesn't even make sense when I think about it, because he never cooks. But regardless, she had her, you know, ten recipes that she would kind of recycle, and you know, there's some good ones. I still love them. You know, sauerkraut with some kielbasa and mashed potatoes. Uh, You know, takes me right back to childhood. You know what I mean? But she had some ones that were like sweet and sour meatballs out of the Betty Crocker cookbook with canned pineapple and cornstarch. You know, and so there was always food on the table. We were never hungry. But there was times when we were you know, waiting in line to get free cheese, you know, at out the um, at the food bank. So it wasn't until I was fourteen years old when a lady came to the small town I grew up in. It's called Mossy Rock, Washington. It's five hundred people in this town, uh, extremely small, extremely remote. There's not a lot around there. And she opened this tiny little cafe called Irish Rose Cafe, and it had linens on the table. It had these green napkins. I was wearing a, uh, a green uh, cummerbund and and bow tie. And we're talking about a small redneck town. You know what I mean? And she had these aspirations of, you know, maybe the tour the tours that would come in, you know, throughout the summer. We had some festivals and things that we did there. And, you know, she was there for probably almost 10 years. But I got in there as a dishwasher busboy, like, you know, as sort of the entry uh, for a lot of chefs into the industry and I really gravitated to the kitchen really quickly. And by the time I left high school, I knew what I wanted to do. And if cooking didn't work out, I was going to be a marine biologist, but cooking worked out. And I immediately went down to Portland after I grew after I graduated high school, started cooking down there, went to Seattle uh, in about see that was 2001. I went to Seattle and I was there for about four years. And then um, I I wasn't cooking in good restaurants. I was cooking actually in an Irish pub and I moved to front of the house. I was learning management and it was a corporate gig. So I, I learned a lot about numbers and running a restaurant and managing a kitchen and all that at a very young age when I was 20, 21 years old. And then I went to New York and started all over again and went to the CIA there. Then went to the, you know, went and worked in Manhattan and that's where, you know, I was there for the better part of nine years. So food for me growing up was, no, there wasn't a lot uh, of emphasis on cooking fantastic meals and all that. It was there for consumption. And, and you know, we sat down and, you know, we talked as a family and it was, that was it, you know. You know, it's really funny. Like, like our parents had a
0: cycle menu at home, right? Like you talk about the ten mm-hmm. same things, like. Same thing. My mom's recipes, you know, she cooked good food, but it wasn't fancy And the things that I grew up with. My favorite is called Greco, and it's a casserole with, like, shell noodles, like shell pasta, and it's, like, canned tomato sauce, canned mushrooms. You saute peppers and onions, Mm. uh, add creamed corn, mix that all up, and put cheddar cheese on it and bake it in the oven – and I've tried to make fancy versions. I've tried to get, like, maitake mushrooms. I've tried to use poblano. Don't like, ruin it's, it, it's, Chris. Don't ruin n- it. It's not the same, like, because of the nostalgia. And we talk a lot about that on the podcast. As like, as a chef in a restaurant, how do you kind of tap into the someone else's nostalgia, like, not knowing them? Because oh, this yeah. dish would maybe be nice for someone else, like, if I made it fancy. But I make it at home. I'm like, it just it doesn't taste like home, right?
1: Well, it's funny. I was just talking about uh, to somebody yesterday about my mom's love for the microwave. And she still uses it as a, a main cooking mechanism. And our meatloaf that we had was, you know, you basically make the, mix the meatloaf in a bowl. Then you take a, a glass, like a water glass, you shove it down in the center. So it's like, think of like a bun cake now, right? So it's like, it's kind of like a bun cake. And then cook it in the microwave and then make a sweet and sour ketchup just by adding sugar to ketchup, slather that on top, and throw that after it's after it's warm, and throw it on the you know the table, and you know eat your eat your meatloaf. And she did asparagus wrapped in uh, ham with with cheese. You know, working mother, you gotta do what you gotta do. I don't blame her, and I still I still can taste those, and they make me happy. So. She did something right.
0: David Chang was just nominated for a James Beard Award for his Microwave Cookbook, right? It's like one of three best cookbooks this past year. It was like David Chang's book on microwave cooking. I had cooking, no so. idea.
1: I didn't yeah, know that. Really?
0: Yeah. It came out last year. Uh, I think it's just called like How to Cook or something like that. Uh, but he co-wrote this book on like microwave use, and
1: well, he's got the he's got the minus touch. So he know.
0: does. So you know, maybe your mom was just ahead of the curve. She should have written her microwave cookbook. Uh, Listen, I years don't
1: ago. I don't hate a microwave. I, I don't I uh, you know I don't use it for everything. No, time end. and
0: place. You know, it time works. and place.
1: Well, how did you end up in Philly? You're not from there.
0: I know you talked about New York. So kind of bring us up to the Philly era. You got to Philly. How
1: and what were you doing in Philly? So I was in New York City, uh, this was going back to 2012, and I'd been in New York, you know, for roughly eight or nine years at that point, and I was working at a restaurant called Teresi Italian Specialties. And this was a restaurant, it was a phenomenon restaurant, it was one of those lightning in a bottle ones. It was two uh, really good friends of mine, Mario Carbone and Rich Teresi. And they went to the CIA together. They were roommates at the CIA. They've been, you know, they were fast friends and they they still are are just this odd couple that that they're just a blast to be around. But they put their life savings, they put their family savings in this little restaurant in uh, Little Italy, little tiny thing. It's, it was 900 square feet altogether, I think, including the kitchen. So the, the dining room was about 500 square feet and we had like 25 seats and what they were able to do, they started cooking with a New York point of view, but through an Italian lens, right? So they had this little shop. They, they looked like a little Italian market. They had you know all these classic, you know Italian- American brands on the shelves uh, to kind of give it that feel of an Italian market. Uh, daytime was sandwiches, and there'd be a line out the block around the block for the sandwiches. Then at nighttime they'd flip it into this little prefix menu that had, Essentially three courses, you had antipasti, you had pasta, and you couldn't choose anything. The only thing you could choose was your entree. It was just three of us. You know, they, they, they brought me on as a chef de cuisine because they wanted to open up uh, another restaurant. So they said, you know, like I guess that I worked with both of them in the past. And, you know, they said, you know, Eli, come down, you know, help us run this restaurant. We can help, you know, you can fo- we can focus on other areas. I said, "Listen, I'll do it for you guys." I even took a pay cut because they couldn't afford me. I said, "But listen, I'm not going to be there and just be in your shadow. Like, if you tell me that you can give me a restaurant, you know, Rich has his restaurant now. Mario wanted his restaurant. I want to be in line for the third restaurant. I will do that. You know what I mean? I will do that for you guys. And that was a plan. Like, you know, they baked me into the 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 business model of Carbone. uh, You know, and from when they were going to open it. But going into it, you know, it's this Italian American restaurant, this high-end Italian American restaurant. And I just felt it it wasn't me. I wasn't, I wasn't gonna be able to be there and just cook with love because that's not who I am. I'm not Italian American, right? So, you know, I, I reached out to Alfred Ehrlich, which is who's like the the dude that's placed so many chefs all around the city and all these different restaurants. He knows every chef. He's he's basically a recruiter. And um, my partner now, my business partner Ellen Yin in Philadelphia had reached out to him about the same time. So he called me and said, Hey, what do you think about going to Philly? I'm like, Where's Philly? You know, I'd, be like, I, I, I'd been, you know, eight, nine years in New York at that point, and I'd never even been to Philly. It never even crossed my mind to go to Philadelphia. Not only did it cross my mind, but I, I, I had no it could have been 10, 10 hours away. I, I had to look on a map and see like how. two quick, hours. Come on. It's, it's less than two hours. You can get if if i leave right now from philadelphia and drive to new york it's an hour and a half and on a train it's even less right so i came down here i loved what she was saying fork restaurant had been in philadelphia at that point 15 years and she wanted to bring it up to date she wanted to modernize it she wanted you know and i loved what she was saying she was going to give me you know a lot of a lot of um, freedom in the kitchen and what i was able to do the number one thing you can't do in Philadelphia is come into Philadelphia and say, "Hey, I'm a chef in New York. Look at me, how good I am. Like it won't work. Like they'll be like, get the hell out of here. Get back to New York, go kick rocks. Right. And I knew that going in because one thing I knew about Philadelphia is it's a prideful city. People love, 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 love Philadelphia. They're so proud to be a part of Philadelphia. And whether you lived here your whole life or, you, you know, You've been here for five, six years. Once you get to know Philly, people fall in love with it, right? So it was this opportunity for me to come down to Philly. I'd been cooking food with Rich and Mario at that point using this sort of process of, okay, how do you look at food through a personal lens that is a meaningful story, right? Well, my family, even though I didn't grow up here, I didn't have any relatives or close relatives here in Pennsylvania. My family's from here. Uh, my dad, the, the name Culp, it's a it's a Penn Dutch name that came over in the 1600s. Um, you know, generations of Culp's were here before me, and my grandparents had moved to Buffalo, where my father was raised, and then my father. And my mom moved out the West Coast. Well, my grandparents followed them to the West Coast as well. So we were all out there. We were basically a West Coast family at that point. So what I was able to do was apply the same thought process that we were doing in New York City, but for my own personal perspective. So all of a sudden, I find myself with a personal connection. And I'm starting to cook what is Italian-ish food new American-ish food, but with the perspective of, you know, this is rich heritage, you know, there's a rich heritage in, in Philadelphia as a birthplace of democracy, you know, what else can we do? And it was just this, I was just ripping through, you know, history books and old cookbooks and, you know, my own family and looking at like, you know, the producers, right? Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, Lancaster, you know, the richest soil in the world, you know, this, this deep, deep, rich, uh, culture of food in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas. And I was able to apply that in a way that the diner, you know, the Philadelphia dining food press, whatever, everybody was like, Oh, wow. Okay. So you're cool. Like, you know what I mean? Like we'll give you a free pass because you're, you know, you're diving into your own history and and all of a sudden we're able to taste some of that. And nobody had done that in Philadelphia because, you know, there was a few restaurants that were here for a long time, right? You had your Lebec Fin, you had your La you know, these very high, you know, haute French cuisine restaurants. And then you had Mark Vetri who had, you know, started doing Italian food, but he was doing real Italian food in Philly. He wasn't doing Philly Italian food, you know what I mean? So, he was, you know, he, he took what he knew from his training out uh, over in Italy and brought that back and, you know, did amazing things. So... Um, Yeah, this is the first time somebody had had said, okay, let's embrace what we're doing in Philly. Like, let's be proud of the food we're doing and let's look at it and, okay, how do we, you know, attach it? So, an example of that, you know, there's a big, there's a rich Jewish uh, community in Philadelphia, just like New York and a lot of East Coast states. And for me, growing up on the West Coast in a small town, I was never... I was never, you know, uh, that that never really crossed my mind, you know, like what Jewish food is and the importance of it and where what it plays in in the East Coast sort of um, diet, I guess you would say. So, you know, for example, I did Philadelphia cream cheese and and a little uh, mini bagels for an hors d'oeuvre, but we were making our cream cheese with local milk, right? So technically, and so it was infused with hay and you know these different flavors, and so. Everybody everybody puts Philadelphia cream cheese on their bagel all around the world, right? You know, those are the type of ideas and thought processes that I was able to apply. And it really took off. Like people really embraced it and, you know, and sort of the rest was history. So
0: how much did the menu change when you took over? Because it was a restaurant that was already established, but it sounds like you changed it a lot. And was there any kind of pushback or feedback? I know sometimes customers have favorite restaurants, a new chef comes in, it goes in a little different direction. So what was that like?
1: Oh, it was a process for sure. At that point, you know, Fork had become a restaurant that was, you know, sort of, I would say, New American French. That was that was sort of the the general feel of the menu, and you know, it was it was relatively safe food, and it was you know for an audience that wanted safety and comfort and you know the consistency. And it was listen, it was good food. I'm not gonna like talk shit about it at all. Um, you know, there's a good chef, Terrence Fury was there before me and he's a big Philadelphia name, uh, longtime chef in Philly, well-trained. However, it was, it was just dated. So the process for me was to, I didn't want to like shock and awe. It was creating safety in the menu, like certain dishes that were going to be okay for a certain clientele. Like we were doing dry age Guinea hen you know, with eight-hour cabbage, and you know we're making our own creme fraiche, and you know that's the chicken dish, right? So also, wait, you're dry aging chicken, like you know, like it's all about education, right? So you educate the diner and make them comfortable, and that's where that's why servers are so important, right? They're the they're the liaison, they're that attachment between you and the uh, customer, and you know, so we just had we had a great service staff that was able to, you know, massage those those moments. And you know win people over, so it you know it took a little bit of time, but you know we we did it, and then you were
0: tapped to go to New York and do one up there, right
1: This was twenty twelve we did fork a year later, we opened up our second restaurant next door called High Street on market, which was uh which was a bakery slash all day cafe and this was sort of before the you know all day cafe became super popular and That was born out of what was already there. So Ellen had, my partner, had a little like mini takeout cafe called Fork, etc. next door. So I was like, well, they are only using this space during the day. Why don't we do this, right? So I found an amazing baker who had just come down from New York City, uh, Alex Bois. uh, He was working. He was the main head baker at Sullivan Street Bakery. Uh, I had just found a pastry chef who had just come from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and she was super talented. She was really on the cusp of what was going on in the pastry world, you know, in tune with what's going on like in Noma and, you know, all these sort of restaurants around the world that were, you know, kind of looking at, you know, the nature around them and the bounty and how to apply that into their menus. And then, you know, John Nadler, who was her husband, but he was just, you know, a hyper-talented chef in his own right. And it was just this blend of, you know, four people and I was just, you know, I was, I was just sort of guiding them and, and, you know, helping them figure out the vision. And we really landed on this vision of, you know, amazing breads, again, looking local, you know, we weren't buying grains from outside Pennsylvania. Um, maybe our all purpose flour sometimes came, but we were really focusing on, you know, uh, this one uh, mill called Castle Valley Mills. And, you know, they, they started supplying us with all these amazing, grains and corn and all these things. And the baker aspect really blew up. We had this really robust breakfast and lunch program. Uh, But the dinner program was what I always thought was the most fun, but it it was like crickets in the beginning, right? It was, nobody could understand it because we're doing these, we're doing these kind of oddball pastas, you know, using fermentation and all these things. And, you know, fermentation was, yeah, it was sort of in the beginning, you know, now it's everywhere. But this was back, you know, almost 10 years ago. So, you know, we were able to kind of get on that that bus a little early. And, but, you know, it took time for people to, to get it, right? So, an example of that would be my, my favorite sandwich in Philadelphia is the roast pork with uh, sharp provolone and broccoli rob. That's Amazing. like the,
0: It's a classic.
1: The, it is, right? And there's a few places that do it really, really, really well. Uh, Denix is one of them in Reading Terminal. One's John's Roast Pork in South Philly. And, I mean, you could take the cheesesteak and just get rid of it. I don't care. I don't like that sandwich. I never have. I'll say it out loud. It's, it's mediocre at best. That's a bold statement. There's like two or three places that do a, a good cheesesteak. And part of that reason is because they use like really good bread, right? But the roast pork and broccoli rabe, if anybody's coming to Philly, I mean, you get a cheesesteak, whatever, you know, Instagram it, whatever you want to do get a roast pork and broccoli rob. Uh, and with sharp provolone because it is it's mind blowing, right? And what I did when I after I had that I was like holy shit, I know exactly what I'm going to do here. I had been doing a fermented broccoli rob up in New York at Teresi for a, a scallop a raw scallop dish and I was like, "Well, I know what to do." So essentially we make broccoli rob kimchi uh, and, uh, and put it on this roast pork with broccoli, you know, provolone on our house-baked, you know, Cetus and Milena hoagie roll. And it was just like, boom, like mind-blowing, right? And, you know, because the broccoli rob was usually just like boiled or something and put it on there. And it, was, it was like an afterthought. So, you know, for me, that was like one example of like what really took off when you were doing pastramis and you know, all these house-made meats. And, you know, so it was really this moment of just hyper-creativity And, again, almost more like towards the Tracy side, like Fork was a more established fine dining restaurant. You had to sort of, you know, you had these sort of parameters and, you know, these, um, you know, guardrails, I guess, you have to work with to sort of keep that standard where High Street was just a sandbox. It was just fun. And, you know, we recognized Bon Appetit gave us, you know, one of their top 10 ranks of best new restaurants there in uh in their magazine actually the number 2 behind my friend Aaron Silverman's restaurant Rose's Luxury uh down in DC down that was here, a big Aaron. deal when that happened that year Huge. yeah 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 so you know can't say enough mm-hmm. about Aaron we worked together in New York as line cooks and at this crappy little restaurant um that didn't even survive but we we stayed in touch and um it was always good to see what he's doing down there and you know for me it was just this it was really fun. I had this great team. It was just me. You know, I felt like that coach on the sidelines with an amazingly talented team of people. And you're just trying to make sure that you, you know, you give them that that creative outlet. You know, but you're just sort of, again, you're, you are the guardrails now, you know, as the chef. And then 2015 came around and, you know, we had this opportunity to open a high street up in New York City. Uh, you know, there's a lot of buzz about it down here in Philly. And we felt like it was a good opportunity to go uh, uh, up there. So this is a whole other story, but my uh, wife at the time, her job was between Philly and New York. So it actually made sense for us to kind of get an apartment up in New York and I would commute back and forth between the two restaurants. So in 2015, you know, we early 2015, I was searching for restaurants. We found one in March, we signed the lease and, you know, we just started to you know, put paper on the windows, you know, that people knew in New York that we were coming. We just announced it and, you know, we felt really great about it and our opportunities there. And, you know, we, we had to, you know, we had to do some minor construction on the restaurant to get it where we wanted. So we probably had, you know, we were looking at like six months of, you know, of, of work to get this restaurant turned around. And, you know, we were going to do the same thing, high-end bread bakery, focus on local grains. And for me, it was like a homecoming, right? Like, okay, I, I kind of cut my teeth in New York. I, I got my education in New York. You know, three years later, I'm able to come back and open this, you know, really, this restaurant. That I'm really proud that we, of what we did. And, you know, that was when, um, you know, my life sort of changed drastically, commuting from Philly to uh, New York. I'd love to talk about that day. You know, most
0: people just kind of go about their day thinking that everything's going to be normal and unremarkable. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, but can you talk about the day that kind of changed
1: everything? Absolutely. Yeah, it was May 12th, 2015. I'd come down and cook this special luncheon for these ladies uh, who had requested it. Uh, these really 10 amazing women in, in Philly that, that had be, recently been recognized. And I want to do something nice for them. So I came down and it was not my normal day to be down there. And, you know, I, I stayed through service. It was not, it was the Around 8.30, I was like, okay, I'm going to wrap up. I think it was a Tuesday or something. So, it wasn't like we had like a busy service or anything. And so, I wrapped up and usually I would take the later train up to New York, the 10 o'clock train. Uh, But this one I was done early. So, I jumped on the 905 train, uh, Amtrak train 188. You know, walked down the platform, got on the train as normal. Train took off as normal and nothing special. Happening nine minutes in to the train ride, You know, it was dark. I couldn't really tell how fast we were going or where we were or anything. And I felt like this really big shudder in the train, more than normal. And, you know, within a second, the train had derailed off the track, uh, going 108 miles an hour. In a a curve that was was a 55-mile-an-hour curve, the engineer had basically lost uh, track of where he was. There was some distraction from another train getting a rock thrown at it that he was on the radio apparently you know just sort of lost track of where he was he thought he was entering a straight stretch he accelerated and he was accelerating through the curve as the train derailed uh, so he had completely become disoriented and you know the the first four cars of the train derailed and you know it was it was a big deal a lot of people lost their lives uh, eight people died I was in the second car back from the uh, the engine, so we were kind of right there where the where the the engine had come off the track. It was the business car and then it was the quiet car where I was, and you know I was in the the very front of the of the quiet car where they had like the double seats for larger groups so they can sit to, uh, and face each other. Well I could it was a slow night on the train, uh, which I still understand why there was such a slow night on the train. Because usually this train would be packed, but you know I was able to put my feet up on the on the seat and just kind of kick back and close my eyes and you know take a nap on the way home. And like I said, nine minutes in, the train derails. I go flying through the air. I don't know if you can imagine this, but I was on the left side of the train, facing forward. The train derails to the right, so it kind of just springboards me, you know, up in the air. And whatever reason, I turned about ninety degrees in the air, and my neck hit squarely against the luggage rack of the other opposite seats. And it immediately, you know, compressed my spinal cord and shattered the, uh, the spine there. So, and sort of fell into a heap and under a bunch of stuff and debris and it was dark and, you know, nobody knew what was going on. I, I pretty much knew that I was, that my life had changed in a big way. But yeah, I, I sort of, I was paralyzed from, from essentially the chest down at that moment.
0: So you knew essentially like when you were on the ground that like you couldn't get up and walk and shake that off.
1: Yeah. So immediately I'm, I'm laying, uh, I'm technically in the train still, but I'm laying on the, what would be the side windows, uh, because it would flip over to the right, you know, so I was like kind of on the rock and the stone that was kind of around the track. And, you know, immediately you try to push up, you know, you try, I knew stuff was on me. So, you know, you try to go push up, but nothing works. And that's how quick it happens with spinal cord injuries. It's you know just in a matter of a second, uh, a split second. Your your body just goes limp. And it could have been much worse. I mean, there were
0: many people who died. But
1: was it Christopher Reeve?
0: Like he fell off a horse or something? Was that spinal
1: cord? Yeah, or something exactly. Like that? Yeah. yeah, Christopher Reeve, uh, Superman. Yeah. Yeah. Spinal cord injury, especially one that's that's you know at the level of mine where it's higher up, because um, you know you have your spine is you know. As you work your way down, you, you have, you know, a lot of people are paraplegic. A lot of people see paraplegic uh, people um, pushing themselves in the chair. Well, my level of injury, you know, I need a, I need a power chair to get around. And, you know, I just, I'm, I'm highly impacted. You know, I, I lost my ability to grasp uh, something with my hands. You know, I, that was the last time I, you know, used a chef knife. That was the last time I, you know, walked. That was the last time, you name it, all those things you know, that, that you take for granted on a daily basis was gone in a, in a second, in an instant.
0: I can't even imagine. But, you know, like from a professional level, your whole career, you're a chef at kind of the top of your game. You're in the kitchen, you're standing, you're cooking. Like, what was that period of adjustment? Like, you know, you're not going to go back to working in a kitchen, cooking in right. a kitchen. How long did that whole recovery process take and then kind of the process of, I guess, figuring out what you're going to do for your career.
1: Yeah, that was the harsh reality of it. You know, I was just coming off, you know, food and wine, best new chef, um, you know, the restaurant that we were, you know, my dream restaurant in New York was happening. You know, I I had left New York, not because I wanted to leave New York because the opportunity was so great in Philly. I had no intention of leaving New York. So for me, going back to New York was like, yeah, let's do it. I love New York City. You know what I mean? Um, I was never one of those people like, oh my God, I have to stay in New York City or I'll die. There's a lot of those people out there. Uh, like there's no other city out there that that's possible you could live in. For me, Food & Wine, Best in Chef, that was like one of my dreams. That was, you know, I worked for a chef in New York who had just recently had had been named Food & Wine, Best in Chef when I was uh, doing my externship and I just saw like... The excitement of it and, you know, what that meant and, you know, in New York City and, you know, these events you would go to and parties. And I was like, all right, this is definitely on my list of things I need to accomplish. And I was at the top of my game and, you know, the future was so bright and there was no reason that we would think that anything would fail. You know what I mean? We felt that we were somewhat bulletproof, you know, and we felt so confident going into New York City you know, but the harsh reality of it was is that the leader of that restaurant, especially the kitchen, me, I wasn't going to be, I was not going to be a part of that much. Um, you know, we we were in the middle of building a restaurant, we couldn't stop. You know, so it still happened. You know, I was definitely part of those conversations. Uh, you know, early on, as far as the menu and working with my team, but we had to, like we had to, like hurry up, we had to, like rush and bring people from Philly up to up to New York to kind of fill my void, and the restaurant just it just never was able to catch the steam that we had hoped. My absence was, it just made it so hard to manage that restaurant from Philadelphia alone. And it's still there We're you know, we're actually uh, hopefully going to be selling it soon. You know, it's it's sort of limped its way through COVID and, you know, we've had to you know, restructure it a little bit, but, you know, it's still there. We were really proud of the work we did there. A lot of people worked their asses off uh, for that restaurant. It's just that, you know it's hard to replace like the leader, you know of of that restaurant. I was present, but I was going through rehab. You know, three four times a week. That most I could spend down there was two or three hours a day, maybe two times a week, three times a week. Because also my stamina, and my energy level was so low. Uh, my voice, my voice, I couldn't hardly really talk. Uh, my voice has gotten much stronger since I got injured, but the diaphragm was affected, right? Which helps you project your voice and. I could I could hardly even speak above uh, a whisper, you know. So I was going through all these things. Not only that, but just the you know just dealing with the agony of the pain of it, and you know you're you're, just, you're figuring yourself out. It's it's not any different than essentially learning how to walk again or crawl. Or you're essentially an infant. Your brain is still there. Your mind is still sharp. But your body is, you have to relearn every single thing. And some things you're never going to be able to do again. But, you know, just the process of learning how to, you know, you gotta get creative. How am I going to brush my teeth? How am I going to, you know, how am I going to feed myself? You know, I couldn't hardly move my arms. I couldn't even bring my, my arm, my hand to my mouth. Now I have those, that ability because so I've gotten stronger with a lot of rehab and, and exercise. But at the moment, I couldn't even scratch my nose. And I know you've been very outspoken about depression.
0: How oh, yeah. long were you in a dark place?
1: Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Um, I would say the first 18 months was very difficult. And it wasn't only because of the injury. I was also having a lot of personal issues with my marriage. And it was just this cascade of, you know, constant bad news, essentially, for that for those those months. And at one point, you know, it got very low. I didn't know if I was going, I didn't know if I wanted to live anymore. I didn't know sort of what my plan, my purpose was anymore. I lost my entire purpose, you know, as a chef. And, you know, here you go from leading a brigade of of chefs into the service every night. Uh, you know, you're pumping up, you're pumping them up, you're high-fiving, you're, you know, you're drinking a beer afterwards, you know, you know, that was a great service, you know, good job, we got our asses kicked, but we did it, you know, that camaraderie. That was what that was what I was good at, and then I, I lost my entire purpose, except for my purpose of being a father uh, to my kid, who was three and a half years old at the time, uh, not old enough to remember uh, really much. So, if it wasn't for my kid at the time, I don't know where I'd be right now. And you know, I knew that it wasn't about me anymore. It wasn't about you know what my goals were in life. It wasn't about you know, I I sort of had to give that up a little bit and say, you know what, Eli, get over yourself. Yeah, you lost a lot of opportunities professionally. Uh, Your career didn't go how you had in mind. Your life isn't going how you had it in in your mind. But get over it, because you have a young son who doesn't look at you any differently. You know, for him, it's like, okay, wow, my dad's in a wheelchair, let me ride on it. You know, like, that was cool for him, right? Like, It made zero impact on him. I mean, long-term effects of having a father in a wheelchair to be seen. You know, I I know that it does does have an impact on him at times. You know, he does get frustrated with it. Um, He just mentioned the other day something about it. And, you know, I just have to say, like, listen, it's a challenge that life gives you. And you just have to be prepared for those challenges and, you know, make the most of them. And, you know, I think it will at some point in his life, he will look back and say, "You know what? I learned so much from that. From that, you know, that time, you know, as a, as a kid with a father in a wheelchair, uh, that maybe is even better than you know all the times I could have tossed him a ball or kicked the ball or you know all the things I had in my mind that I was going to be as a father." And being
0: a working chef is tough, especially in high end restaurants. I mean, who knows what your relationship would be like if you were the chef in two restaurants in two different cities. I mean, there's a lot of people who get divorced. They don't see their kids yes. grow up. You know, the work-life balance is really tough for restaurant chefs. So in that regard, you know, you probably are going to end up having more time with him, especially at this younger age,
1: right? Without a doubt. I mean, silver lining, um, it was It was definitely... It gave me the opportunity to spend so much more time with him than I, than I would otherwise, you know. As a divorced parent, you know, I have four dates with him a week and it's still, when he's with me, he's with me and we're together, you know, otherwise I would, you know, I still think about, okay, but I really want to like create a restaurant concept again and open it sort of within our own company now. And something that was more focused on something that I wanted to do. And I just, I don't know if I, I can trade that time off. I don't know. It's going to take me away from, you know, the time I spend with him if, if I open My dream restaurant, whatever my dream restaurant is right now, um, if I was to open that, it would take time uh, from him. And I don't know if that's something I want to do.
0: And you've stayed on with your company as the culinary director. So you've been with them this whole time.
1: Yes. So without a doubt, I mean, you know, Ellen and I are still very close since COVID, you know, since our company kind of retracted like a lot of companies did. You know we were in a growth phase and we sort of you know we we know sort of halt that it's really been great to see the the people that we have leading our kitchens' we're all there before covid and they're all matured now like they don't need my input you all know, come in and eat and I'll give them feedback on what they what I had but you know for me it's it's allowed me this opportunity to you know focus on my podcast chef radio podcast uh, we have another one called delicious city Philly now but you know, it's given me this opportunity to kind of completely pivot of what I thought was my my passion, my purpose, and apply that same, you know, that same desire to what I'm doing now. And, you know, it's been great. It's been a fun ride. I won't say, I won't say that podcasting fills that void for me. It really doesn't. That void will never be filled for me. Being a chef, there's just no way. I think it's, it's there and I got to accept it. Um, nothing will take that place because, you know, for you know the better part of twenty years I was grinding every day to reach my goals. You know, you know I, I accept that, and you know I've sort of moved on from that. It's still an itch that I might scratch someday. Get back into it more, more fully. But uh, at this point, I'm pretty, pretty content doing what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, I love doing the podcast, but I still feel that I'm a chef. You know, it would be great to make more revenue off of this kind of thing and see where that goes. But like, I still want to be out cooking in some respect. I don't know that I could stop that completely. So for me, it's like finding the balance. So let's talk about that. Why start a podcast? I mean, I know it's the cool thing to do these days, but how
1: did (laughs) that come about? Yes, you're right. There are a lot of podcasts out there. You know, ever since I was injured, it was really hard for me to stay connected to the industry. And I would see chefs maybe at like an event or something, but like sort of that camaraderie that you have between, you know, the chefs in your restaurant group, but also the chefs that, you know, that you might just like run down to the restaurant like before service and say, what's up to, you know? Or, you know, for me, it was reconnecting. To the industry and really being able to sit down with these chefs and get to know them more on just a more personal level, because a lot of them, you know, they're your friends, but you're always working so much, you're not really hanging out outside of work. Everybody has their family, everybody has their, you know, their to do list after on their days off. So it's not like you're getting together and just like, you know, hitting around, you know, go and play around with golf or anything. So the time that we do have to spend together often is. You know, in these sort of small moments, you know, during the day, them popping into your restaurant saying hi, vice versa. That's that's really what I was able to do, you know, for me, you know, to sort of reconnect me to these people. And it was it was great. I sat down. I Actually, we started right before COVID. You know, we didn't really know what was, what was sort of happening. We recorded about four pilot episodes uh, right before COVID. And, you know, some of the episodes you can hear is kind of like talking about like, oh, what about this cruise ship with all these sick people on it? you know, not knowing exactly what was coming down the, uh, the pike. So, um, and then, you know, once COVID hit, it was really an opportunity for chefs to kind of communicate to each other and say, okay, this is what I'm going through. You know, let me listen to this other chef and see if this correlates, uh, with, with what they're going through. And, you know, there's different challenges. And of course, COVID was, you know, the first thing we talked about on probably the first 30 podcasts, but, you know, at this point we're, we're getting through it and, you know, we're talking about it less, which is great. It's an interesting
0: time capsule. You know, um, I was doing my podcast exclusively in person prior to, and when I started doing them from home, I started calling them the COVID Zoom sessions Okay. In the intro. And I, I've left that in there because I just thought it was going to be this blip of like, you know, maybe four episodes over this month. Um, And it was also a way to say kind of like, oh, the audio quality maybe sucks because I'm not using my good mics and everyone's from home. And just to kind of let people know these I'm doing virtually. And then when it looked like it was going to be a little extended, I invested in better mics for my home and a better setup and kind of talking people through the process of getting a better recording because I'm like, oh, we're going to be doing this for a little longer. But it'll be interesting, you know, going back, having that as a recorded thing, talking to these people and what they were going through during that time. Same. You know, I probably had 30 episodes where we're talking about supply chain issues and closing your business and you know, pivoting, which everyone was doing.
1: The pivot, right? Everybody's the, the word of the word of the year pivot for sure. And then sure. you
0: decided because you have nothing else going, you would get involved in a second podcast as well?
1: Chef Radio Podcast. That's me and a chef, or me and a couple chefs. You know, we're talking. It's a one-on-one interview. And I think a lot of people don't realize podcasting, while it does, you know, you can reconnect with people, it's kind of lonely, right? You're doing a lot of the work in a vacuum, you know, you're at home, you know, you're you're doing the editing, you're doing all the processes to get ready for it, and you don't get a lot of feedback. Like as a chef, you cook a plate of food, you put it out in the in, you know, and somebody eats it, and you can watch them, right? You can watch them, oh, ooh, wow. Like I was a I was a voyeur. Like I love watching my guests eat because you know, I'd, I'd sort of stare at them, hopefully it didn't creep them out. But, you know, I'd I'd watch them. And, you know, it was this, you know, I, I would get feedback immediately. Well, with podcasts, you know, get that, you know, some people review, everybody out there, please review your podcast, because it does help us, it really does give us that feedback that we want. And it does, it does go a long way. So, you know, other than that, it, you know, podcasting can be kind of lonely or on a bit of an island and you know it's you have to be self motivated and and all that to get it done where this other podcast was an excuse for me to get a couple friends in the studio and kind of do more of a a podcast about the philadelphia philadelphia dining scene so you know the best things we've eaten you know that's like the best bite as a segment we have you know the food news we have a local food journalist that does that sarah may Uh, We have a local radio producer, uh, Marissa Magnata, from a local rock station here WMMR, you know, that she's like the every person, but she loves food, she loves eating, she loves going out, drinking, bars, all that. So she kind of brings that perspective. So it's the three of us talking about like where we've eaten essentially, and we do it every other week, and it's a blast. And that has sort of allowed another itch to be scratched, which is creating like this social atmosphere within a podcast studio. You know, you're bringing in local celebrities, you're bringing in local food enthusiasts, you know, whatever, you get more creative. And it does have that, we've modeled it sort of after like a drive time radio show would have. So you have these different segments that are sort of hard hitting and, and fun and keep it light where, you know, Chef Radio Podcast, that's, that's a little bit more, you know, just talking about the journey, the origin stories and things like that.
0: It's also great because it kind of highlights local businesses. I think that's really nice when you can kind of give someone... A little plug, you know, so to talk about the places that you're loving right now. People are always looking for recommendations. As much as I think everyone knows about X place, you know, Mm -hmm. you always see people like, where's the best place to get pizza? Or, you know, where's the best place to get that pork, you know, sandwich, hoagie? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you want to leave our audience with today? Is there anything you want to throw out there before we get out of here? Obviously, they should listen to your podcast. Are are
1: Are you giving me a soapbox here?
0: Yeah, sure. You know, whatever, whatever you got, I want to make sure that if there's something that we haven't touched on that you want to get out there, this is your time. Whatever I,
1: I think for me, it's, you know, we all have our struggles every day. You know, everybody has their personal struggles. Everybody's busy. Everybody's going through things. You know, anxiety is at an all time high. And for me, about probably when I was like 28, 29, 30, you know, I had struggled with anxiety, this feeling that I didn't really know what it was, you know, and a lot of it turned out to be anxiety and fear of the unknown in my career. And, and just wondering if I was on the right track and if I was doing the right thing, if I was in the right restaurant, you know, because I was, I was nervous. I was going to like, you know, become this mediocre chef. And, you know, for me, you know, I think in our industry, you know, it's always been this, it's like the, the toy box, all the broken toys in it, right. We're a bunch of, you know, whether it's a doll missing a head, or a, a, you know the analogy of a of a wheel off of a truck, you know, where all these sort of broken toys in our industry, while it's it's becoming more professionalized, uh, at more than we've ever seen it before, which is a fantastic thing. We need that, um, you know, it's always been people that are often dealing with some sort of trauma in their life, and you know, depression, mental uh, illness drug abuse, alcohol abuse, like those things have been rampant in our industry for a very long time. For anybody listening out there that is going through something that is extreme challenge in your life. It doesn't have to be that you're, you know, you're paralyzed. It can be the fact that your, you know, your car broke down, you can't afford it, whatever it is. And it can be very easy to kind of go down this dark spiral of this is not the way it's supposed to be and start blaming people and, and blaming other things. But I think just, you know, keeping that positive attitude is so important. There's even great podcasts out there. One of them is the positive mindset coach. And just like listening to that, for example, there's so many great resources out there. Don't live your life unhappy and feeling like you're the you're the only one going through something. There's gonna be somebody that's out there that's that's gonna be able to help you get through it. And yeah, just you know, preach positivity every day. Um, challenges are gonna happen, but just sort of keep your head down and and find the people who are gonna, you know, care about you and and put that, put your positive energy there.
0: We've talked about this a lot, especially in this past year or so, like I've dealt with anxiety. I mean, I was having what turned out to be like panic attacks that I didn't even know. I was on acid reflux medicine for 20 years, not realizing that it was not food. You know, they always talk about Whoa. food and your diet and exercise and it was anxiety.
1: Yeah. You know, like I said, like people are going through stuff every day, every day. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. If it's you, it's a big problem, you know, for you and find ways to cope with it. You know, don't go down this path of, you know, self-destructive behavior, which you see so often in our industry, you know, stay on, stay on the right side of the line. And, you know, there's a lot of great um, resources out there for anybody that's, that's um, struggling. So, yeah.
0: thank you for being so open with that. And, you know, I can't imagine it's easy talking about, I'm sure everyone wants to talk to you about your story with the Train and the paralysis. I don't know. Does it get easier the more you talk about it? I imagine it's still fairly difficult to get into.
1: No, because I think it's a great story. I think it's a great story. I'm happy to share it. Unfortunately, a lot of people who who have an injury this catastrophic, you know, they 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 lose their purpose in life. They lose it, and very it can be very very difficult. And you know, for anyone out there that I can you know be a resource for or. You know, if I can make one person's day a little bit better or brighter based on my experiences, you know, I think that's that's something that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. I think it also it changed me. You know, I think at that moment in my career, you know, I felt I was invincible. And for me, it kind of brought me back down to earth and what's important. And, you know, focus focus on focus on the important things in life, which are, you know, family, friends and, you know, work and your passion is important and you should foster that especially if you have a love for what we do.
0: Well, I look forward to following along. I think you're going to be a continued voice in the culinary industry and and probably more impactful with the work you're doing now. So, and everyone should go listen to both of your podcasts. Any place else you want to direct our listeners to?
1: You can find Chef Radio or Delicious City anywhere you find your podcasts. You know, you look up my Instagram and all those links will be there. Um, Chris, I can't say enough. Uh, it was really a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on your show. I, I'm sort of a chef without a restaurant in, in a way. I, I have restaurants, but I don't really have restaurants. So I guess I fall somewhere in, the, in, in there. You most definitely do. Right on, man. Right Thanks on. again.
0: And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Have a great week. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and Chef Database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great
1: week!